past year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's a very quiet area. A horrific shade of yellow. Still in New York City. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, Designing for a New World, the architect Sir David Ajay, whose groundbreaking projects include the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. He connects with Hanifa Mwemba, the fashion designer and founder behind women's clothing line Hanifa. The conversation was led by critic and curator Arik Chen, curatorial director for Design Miami, and professor at the College of Design and Innovation at Tongji University in Shanghai. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to hell and back just to find peace. Hello, Anifa and David. It's really great to be with you, or to kind of be with you. I'm, I'm sitting here at home in uh, Shanghai. Uh, where are you guys? I am in Tyson's, Virginia, sitting in my living room. And I am in Accra in Ghana, sitting in my studio. I'd love to know how um, how you both met. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I became a fanboy for Anifa. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, look at this black girl doing this effing amazing stuff. Oh. Like, I was like, I need to know her. Um, so I just reached out. I was like, uh... I need to know you because you have got sparkle. <laughs> so you met through Instagram, basically. Yeah. It was so funny. She kept asking, is this David? The David. <laughs> David, right? David. Yeah, that's me. I was like, this is, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's how we went. Crazy. Let me ask you both sort of a year ago, where did you think you would be? I mean, uh, David, I understand you've sort of a semi-officially uh, moved back to, uh, to Ghana, <laughs> to, to Accra. What semi-officially, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you're always multiple places at once, it seems. So. Sure, sure, sure. No, work-wise, it's, nothing's changed. But um, home life-wise, definitely, I've moved back to Accra with my entire family. And it's, it's really amazing. Uh, it's really a completely new pace. It's a different kind of city, um, but I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, what, what made you decide to, to do that? Well, a couple of things. One, um, you know, I, I made life changes for other projects in my life. For instance, when the Smithsonian was happening, I moved to New York to be close to that, to deliver that. That was a 10-year project. Um, and then several other things happened, so I stayed in New York. And, you know, now with the cathedral here and several other projects that are now sort of happening on the continent in Ghana, I just felt that it was the right time to also give that commitment to those projects and to be close to them. But also I've always wanted to really at some point in my life spend some time back on the continent after just having my childhood here. 
Yeah, I mean, you have some amazing projects in Africa that maybe we can talk about in a little bit. But uh, Anifa, I mean, last spring, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think you thought you were going to be in New York for Fashion Week showing your collection. But instead, <laughs> um, you did this really amazing uh, virtual fashion show on Instagram. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. I was kind of forced in the space where I had to just be creative. And it was a very interesting process, but I'm I'm actually grateful um, because they actually pushed me outside of my comfort zone. I've always been a creative. Uh, My dad used to tell me about how I was like a weird kid when I was a child. And instead of playing with toys, I would literally take them apart and (laughs) try to figure out how they were like made and then try to put them back together. So, yeah. So I was actually, you know, able to share that with the world. And honestly, it was so rewarding. Well, you also sort of took your models apart, so to speak, in that uh, your looks in that virtual fashion show were, were let's say, disembodied. I mean, it was, it was really just, uh, I think, 3D renderings of the, the clothes walking on their own down the virtual runway. What was that about? I mean, was, was the emphasis about putting focus back on the clothing uh, itself or, or was there some sort of other statement that you were aiming to make? No, definitely. Um, it was more about, you know, every single person, every single woman or whoever watching the fashion show can see themselves in the garments and for everyone to just focus on the garments and to pay attention to the detail and how they moved and how they flowed and the colors and everything. And, um, you know, when we started to receive feedback, that's exactly what everyone was saying. So I was so happy about that. Now, of course, uh, the pandemic and, and the way we now sort of communicate uh, has changed uh, a lot of our relationships with each other and and our work. I mean, as a curator, you know, I have a show that's still scheduled to open next month uh, in, in Lisbon, uh, but I assume that it will probably be the third exhibition since the pandemic started that I curated that I will not be able to see myself. And that's, of course, slightly heartbreaking, but at, at the same time, it's a little bit reaffirming and that it reinforces the notion that what I do is actually not for me. You know, it's, 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 it's for the audiences, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I'd like to ask you both, you know, has this, these new ways of, of working changed the way you see your work uh, and who it's for? I must say, I don't miss going to airports. And one of the most beautiful things about all this is not having to run to an airport, but I miss the destinations, definitely. Um, but I really love the fact that you can have a really serious meeting and it's not about, you know, flying for 12 hours and meeting for an hour and going to a hotel and crashing and then flying again. Yeah, I was convinced that I was going to go viral on YouTube for incidents of airport rage (laughs) at at, at some point. (laughs) Yeah, but how about you, Anifa? I definitely miss being able to travel. I've probably had some of my craziest ideas in flight, even though I cry on planes (laughs) because I'm terrified of flying. But I I just miss being able to you know, be in different places. And, you know, if you're at a photo shoot, now we have to be like six feet apart. I can't really do certain things that I used to be able to do. At the same time, I also feel like this current state that we're in allowed everyone, including myself, to kind of slow down and just kind of rethink things and just kind of like, you know, try to do things a little differently. And I think that has allowed me to kind of slow down in a way because I'm also the type of person that moves really quickly. I'm here one minute and then I'm here, you know, the next minute. What makes you cry on planes uh, <laughs> most often? Is it, the, is it the movies or a, a certain jo- genre? <laughs> 
It was one flight that I took from China. I don't know what happened on that plane, but the turbulence was insane. <laughs> I kind of like turbulence. Is, <laughs> you do? is that weird? Oh my God. <laughs> yes. That is weird. I like to live dangerously. Um, <laughs> Anifa, I mean, you, you were born in Nairobi to Congolese parents, but grew up in the U.S., David. Um, I think your father was a Ghanaian diplomat, so you sort of grew up everywhere uh, before settling down in London uh, as a teenager. I mean, now that, uh, you know, home has taken on new meanings for so many people, I mean, in, in your particular cases, how do you sort of define home or how do you even define how you define home these days? I used to think that home was simply... Um, the unit, you know, I, I used to be very invested in this idea that, you know, I could put my hat down anywhere as long as my unit is there, whoever I'm with, my partner, my family, my kids, you know. And I think I operated that way for a very long time. And I think that's to do with this sort of diplomatic life where you just move around and the physical location isn't important, but the kind of the cell, the unit that you're with is critical and that becomes the constant. But it's really interesting coming back to Accra where for the first time I, I have a kind of deep connection to the land in a, in a new way, hmm. um, especially going back to my father's village, um, which I never grew up in or, or saw as a child. But um, there's, there's just an immediate, and it may be romantic because my father passed and I'm trying to reconnect. So a lot of this could be totally, you know, to do with my own brain. But there's something very beautiful about finding a piece of land that you actually say to yourself, it has some kind of meaning, the idea that somehow your ancestors have sort of come from this place. It's very special. This past year has been marked not just by the pandemic, but also, of course, the the Black Lives Matter movement. And it would be really great to hear from both of you sort of how this has affected you both personally and professionally. Wow. The Black Lives Matter movement, well, it's always been there, but the craziness of it all happened. I think it was like a week after, after I presented. And I mean, it affected Every, I mean, I could imagine it affected every single Black person globally, but I remember even getting like uh, interview requests and things like that. I'm just like, uh, I can't do this right now. It's too much going on. But if we're talking about the fashion industry, I think it has shifted it in so many ways. We're seeing so many like new initiatives. We're seeing so many partnerships and things happening. And I think that's a great way to move forward. My hope is just, you know, I feel like we've seen this before. Um, I hope it's not just like a trend and, you know, something cool to do or for companies to say, you know, you know, we work with this black designer or we work with this black person. But I hope it's something that's really uh, something that's going to stick and, you know, will be, you know, the younger generations will come up and they'll see the same thing in the future. But I'm really hoping that this will stick. For me, just it was chilling watching because you know, we knew it was just part of how you had to negotiate the world, that you were always negotiating this idea of being always classed as a second citizen, being classed as a person whose history didn't really matter, you know, who was always mm -hmm. supposed to assimilate but never be themselves, you know, and then to suddenly have this kind of explosion, you know, surge forward and to then see the reaction from people who weren't Black and to realize mm -hmm. how unbelievably unaware the world was mm -hmm. of this issue that we thought was so in your face um, right. but actually was not to most of the planet and I hope that it's not a fad I think it's a sea change I think the dam has, has broken I also think you know like so grateful for social media right because 
I've gotten so much information and just even things that I wasn't aware of, you know, I've, I've learned it on social media. So, yeah, so, so grateful for that. I definitely hope you're right and that we will see long-lasting uh, systemic change. So that's a very optimistic way of looking at it. More romantically optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also other reasons to be even excited is that it, by bringing in other voices in more inclusive ways, we are really enlivening the cultural sphere even more, right? And, and I guess uh, for, for both of you, what does a more just and inclusive sort of world actually look like? What are the sort of possibilities in terms of the actual creative environment that can emerge from this more equitable world? The possibilities are like mind blowing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, maybe that was too broad. Very broad. You know, I'll give you a little shoot. I mean, if you can start to kind of reference the experiences of all the different conditions Mm -hmm. rather than the limited conditions to kind of create opportunity, just think of the kind of explosion of creativity that can arise oh, and and also you know i mean if if every sort of act of creativity is a kind of piece of knowledge that we kind of make that is useful to us as a kind of species and as a civilization as a culture as you want to use it um just imagine if we're able to expand even more from that you know and extract in different ways from different experiences opportunities that actually refine the ability for the culture to be very very alive you know, I sort of feel like the culture that we have is barely a skeleton. We need to put some muscle on it and to put a nervous system on it and, you know, eventually get to a skin and then like, wow. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I still, know. It's, you know, it's right? true. Yeah. <laughs> We're like yeah. still at skeleton stage where it's so kind of analog, the way in which we choose information that we think benefits the culture. And it's just not sensitive enough. It's too clunky. Uh, and it just mm. privileges, you know, the bigger bones, you know, and like the, t- <laughs> <laughs> the tiny bones are just as important as the big bones, you know? I also think we've, we've been conditioned to just work with the little that we have. So just imagine like what David is saying, what we could do with, what, what, is, what is it that you said, the skin? Yeah, like imagine <laughs> if we had skin and not just bones. <laughs> the most sensitive and most... Complex <laughs> organ on our on our body. We're not even not even close to being able to be sensitive like it. Yeah. So you know, I just think that like in the 21st century, we've got to like put muscle on the skeleton of culture, like really to get mm-hmm. it to move in really nuanced ways, and to and to and to bring much more knowledge into it. You know, it's about uploading information into the sphere yeah. of culture to make it richer, you know. Well, speaking of skin and bones, that was the name of a show uh, in, in 2006 <laughs> at the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, looking at the intersection of fashion and architecture. And as it happens, we've got a fashion designer <laughs> and an architect here with us right now. So I'm going to ask you both what you see the relationship wow. between fashion and, and architecture as, as being. Anifa, this is yours, girl. I took the other one. <laughs> okay, okay. David's like, I'm Very tired fair. of taking. <laughs> I do. I definitely see the connection. I've been like inspired by different types of architecture, and there is a bridge between the two. And I've seen other designers use that um, way to also design their garments, um, accessories, footwear, and things like that. So yeah, I definitely do think there's a connection there. Anifa, with your Instagram uh, virtual fashion show, by rendering those garments three-dimensionally without the models, they became super 
architectural. And mm-hmm. I mean, David will remember this discussion that's been going on in architecture since at least the 90s about the uh, impact that digital design tools has on the actual output of architecture, right? And, totally. and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm wondering, like, Anifa, for you, like, has, has that experience sort of changed the way you even design or think about fashion uh, and, and, and how it's made? Yeah, in a major way, like the 3D rendering programs and just how like it's literally a blank space and then you just create from that. My imagination literally just goes crazy. It just allows so much freedom and creativity. I just remember I'm the generation of like, you know, that I, I learned how to use a T-square and scratch out ink with a blade, oh you know, that, that I am the last of that generation. And we, you know, so Apple's coming and you had to kind of learn how to type, you know, and it was just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and here we are now, you know, I'm just thinking of the things that, you know, we're modeling, we're rotating, you know, and we're looking at all this software. The ability to simulate is just, you know, so profoundly powerful for a creative person because, you know, for what we do, there's not much prototyping. And, you know, it relied on the imagination of the creator to just completely hold the information and to process it and to to bring it forward. But now we have tools that we can archive effects and systems that we can go into because, you know, the sort of the, the replay of simulations has this profound ability to show you things that you just missed maybe the first time your your senses yeah. were focused on something else and now your senses are focused on a new thing that you can reuse so it's just profound it's yeah it's it's i totally agree with the the simulation aspect because you know i can have this idea in my mind about like a dress that i'm designing but as soon as i apply the fabric that i originally wanted i'm like hmm that doesn't really flow right and then you know you could just change all you could change the fabric, the colors, the prints. You know, it, it also saves so much time and money, fabric. Like, it's it's a game changer completely. David, you're, you know, how, how are you bringing this sort of technology together uh, in your work in Africa? Or, or how is that yeah. changing, given that there are so many amazing uh, vernacular traditions that you also yeah. um, look at? I mean, may, maybe yeah. tell us about some of your projects now. I mean, you, you have the cathedral, um, which would be great to yeah. learn more about. You have the, the Tabo Mbeki Presidential Library, the Edo mm-hmm. Museum of West African Art, which uh, mm-hmm. sounds really fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, what's really funny is that um, I'm very interested even more now in those traditional vernacular technologies and those ecologies, as I call them, especially now understanding the science behind them. And actually, vernacular architecture was kind of a practice that was a almost like a master craftsman to an apprentice to kind of hand down. And that's how people saw it. It's a kind of survival system that was refined and refined and refined. I think that with the 21st century, what we can now learn from that process of this handing down, we can start to think about environmental effects. We can think about how does the mud purify the air? How does the straw actually insulate? How does it deal with disease? So here I'm working on the continent. I'm using high technology, but I'm actually thinking about very, very what I call primary materiality, primary systems, and fusing the two things to really understand how to make a new 21st century architecture on the continent. So, you know, for instance, it manifests itself when we have to make a cathedral. Well, a cathedral is a new phenomenon that was not designed for agrarian communities in Africa in that way. Even the empires had large halls, but they 
didn't have cathedrals in the way we're talking about 20,000 people, cedar things or 10,000 cedar things. We should mention that the cathedral uh, we're referring to is the National Cathedral of Ghana, uh, yes, which, yes, which, which you're working on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Sorry. <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> so the question is to understand how to use the technology to help you understand the principles of certain forms and topologies that you're interested in and to see how they can become new, remade, reborn again as phenomena for the new populations and the new cultures without losing the essential quality, which is what I call the translation of the information that creates the profound connection to the habitation that uh, allows it to continue. So for me, how do, how do you do that? And I don't think it's about just creating contemporary architecture. A lot of African architects think, you know, just like, you know, let's look at some, something modern, we've got a new topologist built something modern. And I think that that's completely going down a dead end, which just creates more junk. You know, I call it kind of junk construction. And actually the art of it is to go into the research of what has actually created the kind of zenith of the civilizations and then to see how you can expand it. Because as we expand ourselves, there's no mimicry in that. The kind of the fool thinks it's mimicry. You know, I think the wise understand that it's information and that, you know, you need to kind of analyze that information and to understand how to manipulate the condition that you have, which is the industrialized world and the industrialization of material and matter. And how do you then bring that science of the ancient world and the sort of innovation of technology and its manipulation of matter to create a kind of new possibility for a place like the continent of Africa? That's kind of what's blowing my mind about being here that I'm just loving. David, for, for years, you've been talking about how we need to sort of rethink uh, different civic models through architecture, right? Whether it be libraries as early as your sort of idea store, which was a, a kind of recasting of, of libraries as kind of community uh, centers. And, and that was the, the early 2000s. Uh, you've rethought uh, museums. You're also uh, rethinking monuments uh, as well. So these, these are all sort of uh, really Western models of architecture mm-hmm. that are being revisited by a lot of people. Uh, including yourself. And I'm wondering how that translates uh, in Africa. I mean, I think in talking about your uh, Edo Museum of West African Art, I mean, part of that museum's ambitions is to see the return of of many of the the looted Benin bronzes that are in UK collections now. And yet the history of the museums themselves are a kind of colonial relic. Yeah. No, this is the irony of the project. And it's it's been the deep dive... um, to think this through, which is that the idea of the museum in the Western canon is definitely not going to be the idea of the museum in Africa. One, you know, here we are talking about a 200-year gap or something like that between when the artifacts were stolen and then a return. So you're returning to a time when the civilization no longer exists. So so this idea of return is kind of weird anyway, because it's not weird in the sense that you shouldn't give it back. You should, but you, you can go back in time and give it back to the people that you stole it from. So now you're giving it to the descendants of the people. And you're, you're giving it in a world where the descendants have never had the providence of the objects. So they've never evolved with the objects. They haven't learned them. They haven't kind of gained from them what was rightfully theirs mm. because that was absorbed by Western or the colonial master who learned it and absorbed it. And, and, and that is the crime for me, not the artifact itself, the crime of the civilizations not having those artifacts to grow their civilizations and to grow their cultures. It created an abrupt kind of rupture there. And now what you have is that the museum is in Africa, 
a re-educator of the African experience, what the African experience is. We talk about the African experience. The performance and the rituals and the oral cultures are still in the, in the culture, but all the artifacts are in the West. I mean, it's crazy that, you know, the culture even exists. It's, it's hard to even believe how it survived. It shows how incredible these people are. And so for the objects to come back, essentially it is really a remaking of a connection back to objects and beautiful things that have been removed from the evolution of the people of the continent, who then hybridized by absorbing Western culture as part of their own, when it actually is a kind of, it's a, it's a hybridity. It's a, it's a twinning that isn't a kind of natural evolution. So I just think that there is a kind of going to be an explosion, I hope, of this idea of a new kind of museum on the continent and something that is really profoundly required, you know, to the point that, you know, most Africans in certain kind of cultures think that those artifacts are, you know, evil totems, to the point that the context from which they were taken, the narrative of 200 years ago, is still being played out because there's never been a reconnection to understand the evolution of those things in relation to modernity. You know, we're still having, you know, priests in, in on the continent talking about the kind of evil of incredibly beautiful objects or royal tropes. So we've got to get through all that <laughs> and regain our beauty that is our what our ancestors made, you know. And just because what they say it might have been may be something, it doesn't mean that that's how it helps us into the future. When you look at a Greek temple, sorry, they killed people and spilled blood all over it. Right. Th that's not what we're trying to recreate. <laughs> but look at the damn columns. Look at the architecture. Look at the frame. Look at what it said that can propels you to make a possible future. You don't need to sacrifice people again because that's what its history was. <laughs> I mean, David, I think you you just <laughs> you, you brought up a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> That was quite a, Sorry, quite a you mouthful. Just, you just, you just, like, <laughs> I just had to spill that. Sorry. <laughs> no, it was amazing. No, no, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. Talking uh, as, as someone with, with multiple identities, and I think that that applies to all three of us, it gets increasingly complicated uh, when, when you talk about these sorts of uh, issues and from which vantage point you are examining them, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess that leads me, uh, Anifa, to ask you, you know, in the context of... Uh, cultural reappropriation, right? And cultural appropriation, uh, which has become, as you know, a, a very uh, contentious subject uh, in fashion and in other fields. What are the sort of nuances of, of cultural appropriation? And as someone who is both sort of African and American, you know, when you are sort of deriving or drawing from African traditions, do you see that as, as a kind of appropriation? I mean, for me, as a Chinese-American living in China, you know, I, I sort of find myself sort of uh, both catching myself and excusing myself, you know, in, in, in different uh, circumstances as an appropriator. Yeah, I believe that there's a lack of acknowledgement and also people aren't really educated. You know, you see brands appropriating cultures all the time and, you know, even how they do it, they're not, they're not even doing things correctly. So I think when you do appropriate, you need to acknowledge the culture that you are appropriating. And also, you know, I, I just think there needs to be some type of bridge where, you know, there is accountability. This idea of other and in is is so problematic. <laughs> and, and, and that is what plays in on both sides. 
you know, that sort of dominant cultures feel like they can just sample because it's just stuff that we yeah. can just all take. It's just there. <laughs> and it's, it's like there. But then it forgets the trauma of what the dominance has created um, by creating subservience and other that needs to be dealt with before you can create that sampling world that we all want. And so that sensitivity is what I think a lot of, you know, it happens in fashion, but it happens in architecture. It happens in everything. You know, Mm -hmm. you'll have a Western architect sampling, you know, Chinese architecture and manipulating it or, you know, a bit of Africa or a bit of Mexico, you know, you got to deal with the hurt and then you got to move, then you can move on. Yep, exactly. What's next for you both? What are you working on tomorrow? <laughs> Anifa, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I have some um, projects that we have been working on and also planning our next pink label presentation. Is that going to be online as well? Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to find out. <laughs> yes, love that. Great. No, And I'm just working on some new things, which are very exciting. I can't say anything about because <laughs> I have to sign these NDAs, but very, very exciting projects. Oh, I can't um, wait to hear about them. Yeah, which you will hear about. And um, I'm grateful to be able to have the opportunity to work, you know, it's, yeah. as a creative person. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. It really it's a is. a blessing word. Yeah. So I'm grateful for this talk and always to talk with, I think, the superstar Anifa, oh. if not worthy, and to see more from her <laughs> in the world is what we want. Likewise. <laughs> Listen, really, thanks, guys. It's, it, it was really great speaking with you. And we'll all look forward to hearing what you're up to soon enough. Much love. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released.